And we are back. Phil Williams, Right Side Radio, solid, conservative, just plain right, covering down on some ground across the northern half of the great state of Alabama. I'm talking about this show goes way down south of Birmingham, up north of Huntsville, Tuscaloosa, back to Gaston, parts of Georgia, Tennessee, and Mississippi, all thrown in just for good measure. Hey, you're getting a lot of response still from that monologue. Just got an email from uh, uh, one of our listeners who calls himself Doc Tom. Uh, Doc Tom says, hey, Phil, great message. I'm 65 and I want to sign up. He says, we don't carry a big stick to take someone's freedom. We carry a big stick to keep our freedom. That's uh, well said, sir. Uh, and then uh, what else we got here? Bruce from Hazel Green just texted in, says, Air Force veteran Minuteman Missiles, Grand Force, North Dakota. Thank you for your service, sir. Um, John from Brownsboro uh, just texted in. Uh, I, I, I'm trying to see what I've got here. Uh, oh, he's, he's talking about your podcast, remember? So I saw that one. Uh, you've already replied to that, I see. Yep, good deal. Uh, John from Huntsville. Phil, do they have grenade launcher ranges? No. <laughs> I don't believe they do, no. Um, Raven from Russell says, nobody wants war, but we have to be ready. Readiness does not mean making our warriors into snowflakes. In, indeed, sir. Um, Jason from Jasper suggests that we should go out to the gun range, have it catered by Just Love Coffee, and serve maple bacon donuts. Ooh, I'm, ooh. I am for this. This sounds like an epic Saturday, in my opinion. Yes. Um, uh, we got some new ones coming in. Uh, brand oh, yeah. new texter, Dwayne from Winfield. Appreciate you, man. Glad you're in the queue. I see you've got a text there, but I haven't seen it yet, so I'll get back to it. Uh, I just saw somebody else was new, too. Where was it? I guess. Nope. I know I had another new one. Maybe you already put their name I in there. Did, I did, and I it. now don't remember. Darn. Well, okay, other new I'll person. Thank you for that. I'll there. go back. <laughs> um, all right. Hey, number one of the Triple Dipper. Executive action, all right? Call it the executive push, if you will. So there's a lot of talk about, you know, the separation of branches, and I totally agree with that. I mean, there are times when the legislative branch has to do what it wants to do, believes is right, regardless of what the executive will do. Sometimes, too, you do stuff knowing full well the executive won't sign it or is going to veto it. Go ahead and put them on the spot. Your job is not to do the other branch's job. But I get it. There's also times when you want to coordinate. You want to, you want to have joint effort. You want to show a unified front. You want to show that you've got – you know, the ability to pass a law and it become the law. Well, you can pass the law. It doesn't become the law until the executive signs it. It's just part of the way our system works. And it's a good system. It's a checks and balances. But, but I will say this. The executive branch has a bully pulpit. Far more than the legislative branch does, really, in my opinion. The executive branch has the power um, of, the, uh, of, of, the, of the actual office of the presidency or of the governor or whatever the case may be. And so when the executive branch sets a policy or provides an emphasis, or for that matter, refuses to provide an emphasis, well, it means something. Don't think for a second, like when Biden says, well, it's time on the, on the border. Well, it's time for Congress to take action. <laughs> First of all, sir, you had a Democrat Congress until about, mm, what, two months ago. But secondly... No, actually, actually, they just took office. So, yeah. Um, but, but anyway, the bottom line is this. You cannot put off your policies on another branch of government. If they buck it or change it or fight it or rule against you in court, I get it. But you don't have that luxury when you're the one setting policy and you can control the flow of something or, for that matter, provide a regulatory emphasis. Here, here's a case at the local level. School choice. What's going to happen with school choice this year? Anybody's guess. 
I am hopeful that we're going to see some measure of school choice passed in the Alabama state legislature when it goes into session in March. There's talk. There's more chatter than usual. The unusual thing we've got right now is that the governor and lieutenant governor have both openly stated unsolicited that they believe that this is the way to go. Now, Governor Ivey's been very careful not to go too far in her comments, so we don't know what she's advocating for. But she's open to school choice, she said, or expanded school choice. Lieutenant Governor Ainsworth, on the other hand, story came out January 23rd, just a week ago. Lieutenant Governor Ainsworth, who, by the way, is not the one who signs bills into law, but he does preside over the Senate. And it is widely expected that he would be a candidate for governor should he have the option, you know, in the next election cycle. Lieutenant Governor Ainsworth, it says, continues his push for school choice, saying, I'm all in. Lieutenant Governor Will Ainsworth, it says in 1819 News, continues to push for school choice as the March legislative session, session creeps closer. Since the 2022 regular session, the cries for school choice have grown louder. It says Alabama's poor national performance in reading, math, and science has led many to consider schools other than those in which they're currently zoned. And it points out that we lost our two school choice champions, uh, Senator Del Marsh and Charlotte Meadows, uh, neither of whom are in the legislature now. Um, but it points out that Ainsworth and Governor Kay Ivey both made school choice one of the topics they chose to address in their inaugural speeches. And then over the weekend, apparently taken to Twitter, just not last weekend, but the weekend before, Lieutenant Governor Ainsworth said, I believe it's time for real school choice that allows parents in Alabama to decide what's best for their children. So that kind of emphasis, well, it means something. And when you see a state legislature, oh, you know, oh, the teachers union, I just don't know. Can we buck the trends? I don't know. Weakness and apathy, I don't know. But when you have the executive branch saying, hey, can we get on board here? Hey, we need to do this. Well, it, at the very least, it can make their legislative backs a little straighter. So there's that. The other question that I would have is, what about tax relief? Now, we're hearing the legislature again chatter about tax relief. They've already begun, in my opinion, to begin kind of pulling back from it. You're starting to see the crawfishing. Well, we don't know how much we can do. We, these are one-time monies, and it's very important that we, I get it. I get it. My friend Clay Schofield was here in the studio last week, and he said the same thing. He's the Senate Majority Leader. He said, we got to be careful. These are one-time monies, but something good's going to happen. We just got to figure out what. Well, what happens, though, if the executive branch really gets on board? Story came out of uh, Alabama Today just uh, last fall. It says Governor Kay Ivey at that time, before the election, by the way, before the election, <laughs> campaign promises, Governor Kay Ivey addressed the Kiwanis Club of Montgomery in September of last year saying in addition to the governor's normal talking points, she added support for providing tax relief in the pocketbooks of Alabamians. Okay. Now, she's on record. When the legislature looks at something like this, they want to know, is the executive branch going to pocket veto this thing or just veto it outright or send back an executive amendment? Or are they going to say, that's what we need to do, fellas. Y'all pass it and send it to me. I'll sign it into law. When you get that kind of executive push, it means something. And so right now, we do have the lieutenant governor and the governor both saying they're for school choice. We do have the governor saying she is for some measure of tax relief, although she was careful with her terms about how much. 
But I'm just telling you, folks, it matters. The executive branch has the power of the bully pulpit. And if they use it effectively, they can actually move legislative action. And they do. And I, I mean, when I was down there in Montgomery, uh, the, 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 basically the, uh, the governor's office had its own lobbyist, so to speak. By the way, if you see somebody with the title governmental affairs, that basically means they're a lobbyist for an organization. They're not a lobbyist like an independent lobbyist, but they do go and act on behalf of that, uh, that, uh, that entity, that governmental office, uh, in terms of legislative affairs and trying to get policy uh, action put into place. So the legislative affairs guys from the governor's office were constantly on the, uh, the floor of the uh, Senate talking to us, trying to get, you know, ben, when I was there, it was Bentley, when, trying to get Bentley's, um, you know, priorities put in place, uh, and then Ivy when she took over. But at the national level, you know, what we're seeing right now is at the national level, the Biden administration is actually choosing not to do some things. And, and when the executive branch stays silent, that speaks volumes, too. So you have to look at this and go, OK, the workings of government are that the power of the purse and the legislature is the one that legislates laws into existence. But the executive branch has the power of regulation and enforcement and, oh, by the way, can then use its bully pulpit to get more action. But what about when they just sit quietly and do nothing? Case in point, story on the National Review came out uh, five days ago. New York City mayor rips the White House for failing to identify a point person in charge of the border. I mean, so, okay. It's funny to me that this is Eric Adams. This is liberal Democrat Eric Adams. But he's calling out the Biden administration. Good for him. I'm glad he is. New York City Mayor Eric Adams called out the Biden administration for failing to communicate with big city mayors about federal efforts to solve the border crisis. In other words, Biden keeps saying, well, we have a plan, but the legislature needs to act. Congress needs to take action. No. When asked whether he had any constructive conversations about bringing more order to the border with the Biden administration, Adams was frank. This is what, this is what the mayor of New York said. He said, I was told we have an individual that's coordinated the operation. And as I share with the White House officials, I don't know who that is. What you're seeing there is executive non-action. The crisis on the border is not because of Congress's inaction. The crisis on the border is because this is an executive branch that has chosen not to do. And by not doing, they're technically doing, if that makes sense. They are, they are not doing something which is having the reverse effect of what it could be. I mean, just think back to Trump. When Trump was in office, what was he doing? He was realigning financial priorities to build the wall. He was enforcing policies at the diplomatic level because he had that opportunity. He had that ability. He was, he was working on agreements, international agreements with Mexico and Canada. As a result, we had literally seen illegal immigration just, just cascading down. As soon as Biden took office, what did he do? He got rid of Trump's executive orders. He literally signed contravening executive orders, which signaled to the world that it was a whole new day. And where are we now? The floodgates are open. And you've got a liberal Democrat mayor of one of the largest cities in the world saying, we got a problem. And it's the Biden administration doing it. And I've told them I want to talk to their person. And they told me there's a person but I can't even figure out who it is. What does that tell you? Executive inaction. 
I tell you what, let me go through my stack here. I got a couple more that I'll get to about this. Oh, here's one. Yeah, this will make you mad. Stand by. The Biden administration is giving left-wing groups hundreds of millions of dollars to help illegal immigrants fight their deportation. Oh, God. <laughs> I, can't, I mean, I can't, I can't make this. I'm, here, it's a real article. I'm showing the camera. It's, it's, Why? I, I, I'm <laughs> Boomer, I, I don't have an explanation for it, except to say this is what the executive branch can do or not do if it wants to, apparently. Man. So, so yeah, you've got two left-wing nonprofit groups that have content, combined to rake in hundreds of millions of dollars, according to a story on Fox News from last week, six days ago. Literally, taxpayer-backed government contracts since President Biden took office with two groups. One's called the Vera Institute of Justice. The other is the Acacia Center for Justice. Vera Institute has collected around $350 million dollars to help ward off the, quote, so-called threat to civil liberties by deportation of illegals. And the Acacia Center, a newer nonprofit linked to the Vera Institute, has also pocketed tens of millions of dollars in recent federal contracts, and they are a left-wing immigration group. And, and, and you've got one guy saying here, these enemies of the law get over 90% of their revenue from the government, more than defense contractors get. So the same government would resist these foes of civilization, not fund them, and certainly not help them bring more chaos to our poorest and most vulnerable communities. But that's what executive action right there. That's the executive branch doing what it wants to do, taking no position to help, taking every position to hurt. The executive branch, it does have a bully pulpit. Take me to a break, brother. We'll do that right now. I'll come back and give you a few more examples of what happens when the executive branch can do its thing or not do its thing, what does that do? Well, it drives up activism in some cases, like the pro-abortion extremists that I'm about to tell you about when we get back. Y'all stay tuned. Phil Williams, Right Side Radio. We will be right back. Phil Williams, Right Side Radio, solid conservative and just plain right. Understanding the ins and outs of government is so important. It's more than it's more than making you an educated voter. It's it's the kind of thing that that makes you uh, uh, basically feared by those in government because you understand the processes. You know, when when someone in government says yes, but that's really not the way it works, and you look at them and go, yeah, it does. Uh, that that means something. And, and I'm not talking about being disrespectful. I'm just saying that that knowing the flow, you know, go down to the state house, by the way, I, I used to love it when my constituents would show up at the state house um, and, and walk the halls, see how it works. Uh, go to a committee meeting, pick a, pick a committee or a bill that you care about and just go down there and visit. Or for that matter, you know, if you're, um, if you have the opportunity, I would especially encourage you go down to Montgomery while they're in session, take the kids and let them have a, um, um, uh, an educational experience about how government works. It'll, you, can, you can watch a, a committee meeting for a few minutes. You can go sit in the gallery and watch the House or the Senate do its thing. Uh, walk across the street to the state archives and look at the state history here. By the way, the archives is a world-class museum. Uh, get a tour of the Capitol. I mean, all these things are available, and it's, it's, it's so cool. It's so, in my opinion, it's so necessary because it, 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 it builds within us as voters – 
a greater understanding of what it takes to run government, which gives us an edge when it comes time to vote because then we know how to ask the, uh, the candidates questions and all that kind of stuff. But I'm, I'm spending time right now focusing on the issue of the, or basically the fact that executive branch cannot enact the laws, but the executive branch certainly, certainly has the power of the bully pulpit. It has the ability to make things happen, not the least of which right now is the level of rhetoric coming out of the Biden administration for abortion. Things like um, Kamala Harris giving her speech last week where she actually omitted the words life from life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness uh, in, in her quoting of the Declaration of Independence, where the Biden, President Biden himself um, uh, claims that he's all for the idea of abortion rights because it's, in, in his opinion, it's, uh, it's part of, you know, reproductive health. And then, you know, the Biden administration's uh, recent determination that they can mail abortion pills to any state they want to, regardless of whether that state's laws say they are a pro-life state, like Alabama. That's an executive emphasis. That is them blowing off the idea of what the laws actually say at the state or even the federal level. They are literally taking action. And it causes things like what I've got here in my hands from January 24th, just, what, six days ago. Pro-abortion extremists indicted for allegedly defacing pro-life pregnancy centers. Now, here's the caveat. The funny thing is, it was the actual federal Department of Justice that did do the indictment. So I got to say, it's a little bit of a, huh, that's good to hear. But I also point out, though, that there's a great deal of frustration because these are allegations from almost a year ago. Um. I've got one uh, indictment uh, that comes days after the uh, FBI offered $25,000 in reward to sources for things that happened uh, in the early part of 2022. And one of the pregnancy centers that was defaced in this article that I'm talking about said earlier this month it planned to hire its own private investigators to to find suspects because they say the FBI is slow walking its probe. Nonetheless, uh, you've got activists that feel emboldened. Why should they not? They're being told that the Supreme Court is evil. They're being told that they can rally outside of the Supreme Court's uh, justice homes. They're being told that, um, that they have a right to feel anger and that you know everything about abortion is about a right. It's not a right. The Supreme Court's already determined that. But nonetheless, these two yahoos down in Florida, they felt empowered, according to this article from National Review, and they were indicted because they decided to go on a a vandalism spree in uh, places like Hollywood, Hialeah, and where was the other one? I think this was in, in Orlando, Winter Haven. Defacing and vandalizing pro-life counseling centers. All right, folks, we got plenty more, but coming up top of the hour, we're going to take a, a moment and talk to Stephanie Smith. Our friend Stephanie has got a new gig in life. We'll tell you about that and get her thoughts on some things that are happening and what she thinks about executive action. She used to work for the Riley administration. She's got some perspective. Phil Williams, Right Side Radio. We'll be right back.
right side ruffians out there, 